I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. Joe Biden's victory in the U.S. presidential election in November 2020 led to much debate about the future of American engagement in the Indo-Pacific region. But the first hundred days of his administration indicate strategic continuity on foreign foreign policy front, but a change or some minor changes in domestic policy front. I am Suresh Desai, and to discuss this, we have with us Manoj Kemalramani and Aditya Raman. Hi, Manoj. Hi, Aditya. Hi. Hi. So let's talk with Biden's speech. Uh, Biden gave a speech yesterday. What were the major highlights regarding foreign policy from that speech that you guys could think of? So I can start with this. I, I think uh, predominantly this was a speech about uh, you know his administration, the hundredth days of his administration, and the broad direction in which he wants to take the U.S. Predominantly, he was talking about domestic policy. He spoke about the. Uh, different initiatives and the different plans that he's launched beginning with obviously the attempt to vaccinate the country uh, and to bring the pandemic under control so he highlighted the fact that they had promised to vaccinate 100 million people in 100 days uh, and they are at about 200 million 220 million sh- uh, shots in 100 days so they've far exceeded that goal he talked about how uh, the objective is to now continue this and not ease up on this to make make sure that the country sort of gets back on track and you don't see the kind of deaths that you once saw uh he spoke about uh, support and aid provided to families in america which have been struggling because of the economic impact of the pandemic so he highlighted his american rescue plan which provides uh, economic support to americans he also then spoke about his uh, jobs plan which uh, is critical from the broader sort of uh, renewal of american uh, power uh, around the world also so he spoke about how this is a once in a generation investment in america the idea that this is the largest jobs plan since uh, the second world war and the goal is to upgrade transportation infrastructure modernize roads bridges highways and so on and so forth provide the high quality linkages uh, networks for pipe drinking water better schools child care and the rest of it the idea is to focus on all of this to be able to renew america which has been part of his sort of pitch even before the election where his sort of campaign slogan was build back better and that better bit is where uh, you have the foreign policy element of it because he spoke about how the US is in uh, a contest for uh, the future of the 21st century with countries like China uh, and these are the kinds of policies that you will need to renew american leadership he spoke about nato and the indo pacific which i think was important he spoke about uh, both of them in the sort of same sentence uh, and he spoke about how he was telling xi jinping uh, and i'm going to quote him that we will maintain a strong military presence in the indo pacific just as we do with nato in europe not to start conflict but to prevent conflict so this sort of highlights and i'm sure this is a sentence that must have been picked up in beijing where it reconfirmed must have reconfirmed a lot of their notions about the us desire to militarize the idea of the indo pacific and i think that's one of the things that must have gotten noted but the broad argument with regard to foreign policy was about 
you know, that there is a competition that's playing out for the future of the 21st century. Uh, the U.S. needs to be a leading force in that competition. So primary uh, impetus for the U.S. to play that role will come from domestic revival, domestic regeneration, economic growth, creating new jobs, creating new infrastructure, building uh, on clean energy requirements, technological innovation. At one point in time, he spoke about uh, the falling investments in research and development in science and technology in the U.S., saying that we need to up those further. And finally, sort of he talked about how while you are competing uh, for all of this, where you're competing economically, you're competing on governance norms, and you're competing militarily, you also need to work with different part, different people in different countries around the world to address uh, what are global challenges. So climate change, non-nuclear non-proliferation, and so on and so forth. And for that, you will work with different countries around the world, including China, Russia, and the rest of them. And he was basically talking about how that's been his administration's approach. Uh, towards the end of the speech, he spoke about more domestic issues like uh, racial inequality and the rest of it. But those don't necessarily relate to foreign policy directly, but they do relate in the context of uh, the image of the U.S. and the idea of American democracy being a being functional, being equitable, uh, delivering justice to people, and those kinds of things, you know, which are far more. Uh, sort of second order, but very important from the point of view of systemic competition with China, which sort of is engaged in systemic competition with the US. So that's roughly what the speech talked about. Fair enough. Uh, so you guys, Manoj and Aditya, you have worked on, you have published a document on Biden's approach to the Indo-Pacific region, early trends, what are that, what is continued, what has changed. So this, well, the first question was regarding the speech, but from the, your document, what could you highlight? What has continued from the Trump administration and what, what are the early trends of change in Biden's foreign policy? For example, with reference to regional forums, which are reference to partners and allies. Has anything continued? Has anything changed? So yeah, so essentially what we've tried to look at is in our document is look at the changes in uh, the US's approach to the Indo-Pacific. And I just spoke about Biden's comment about you know, maintaining a military presence in the Indo-Pacific like they do with NATO. Uh, and Aditya will talk more about the military aspect of it. But broadly, what we did in our document was that we looked at the background of uh, what was Trump's policy. And one of the biggest shifts was that under Trump, you had an Indo-Pacific framework come into being. Right? It was in late 2017 that you had this concept of the free and open Indo-Pacific that was first spoken about. Later that year, in 2017, you had the U.S. national security strategy. This identified China, North Korea as primary challenges to the U.S. interests and values in the Indo-Pacific region. It also talked about working with allies and partners. Now, while it did that, you also saw that there were frictions between America and its allies and partners, right? While the relationship with India did progress from the defense point of view, uh, there were trade frictions with India uh, and the Trump administration. At the same time, the relationship in East Asia with traditional allies, whether it was the Philippines, whether it was South Korea or whether it was Japan, there were friction. There was friction uh, under the Trump administration. This friction was partly due to, like say in the case of Philippines, it was also due to the policies of Rodrigo Duterte. But with South Korea and Japan, there were discussions about burden sharing and, in, and sort of increased uh, payments required from these partners for to be part of the U.S. security umbrella. I mean, at one point of time, if you remember, Trump was talking about how it's okay if folks want to go nuclear. That's perfectly fine with him. So I think some of that sort of created anxiety. Of course, 
Trump pulled out of the TPP, which was a big economic deal in the region. That again created anxiety about America's willingness to stay in the region. Uh, he pulled out of the Climate Accord. He pulled out of, out of the UN Human Rights Council. So all of that sort of created anxiety about an American retreat from, from multilateralism while he was still talking about the Indo-Pacific. So there were some positive moves in that, you know, you built up a relationship with Japan, Australia and India, specifically around defense. Uh, and the Quad sort of started to take shape under Trump. You had some structural changes in the U.S. with the formation of the, with the Pacific Command changing to the Indo-Pacific Command. So there was a structural change also that happened. Uh, you had a certain vision that started to be outlined, which was a rules-based international order, a free and open Indo-Pacific, comments about the Indo-Pacific becoming a priority theater and the rest of it. Um, but you also had these serious challenges and contradictions which made pursuing any of this far more seriously difficult. Also, when you only pursue a limited military relationship, it will be a matter of concern for some of the countries in the region because you don't want to be seen as ganging up. You don't want to be seen as creating an alliance militarily um, because that will also place demands on you. So there was also hesitancy. And because of that approach, you also saw hesitancy in a lot of East Asian countries, which basically kept saying, we don't want to be part of block confrontation. So we don't want to be choosing between the China, between the Chinese and the Americans. So you saw those sorts of certain positive developments, but certain challenges also emerged. Towards the end of the Trump administration, you saw some degree of conversation on investments, economic relationships, but yet the money that was being talked about was very, very little. So the biggest fundamental sort of problem was that this was largely militarily driven and there was little effort and investment to address developmental challenges that countries in the region were facing. Because you need to do that to become a viable competitor from with the Chinese because the Chinese are spending a lot of money to sort of look at developmental issues in the region, although they're doing it from their interest perspective. What we saw in the Biden administration sort of when it was even being formed, like during the time when the campaign was going on, you saw senior people who would become senior officials in the administration talking about how this approach needs to change. So they didn't sort of talk about how you need to soften with China. The arguments were always about maintaining a tough approach to China, pursuing and continuing with the Indo-Pacific construct, but also, you know, making sure that you are adjusting policy in order to see what exactly needs to be done. So, you know, the US needs to not continue with business as usual. They, some of them argued, like, for example, Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan. Jake Sullivan is the current national security advisor. Kurt Campbell uh, is also part of the establishment from the point of view of taking care of the Indo-Pacific. They had a piece uh, last year in which they talked about how this Cold War analogy, uh, which in some ways the Trump administration was okay with, exaggerates the existential threat posed by China. And they spoke about things like sustainable dis deterrence in the Indo-Pacific, even coexistence possibly with the Chinese military in the Indo-Pacific. But they also spoke about working with allies and partners uh, standing up for our values and developing relative strength uh, in the relationship with China. So they didn't sort of talk about absolute confrontation, they're talking about relative strength. Uh, and similar sort of arguments we've documented that were put out, whether it was by the man who would become Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, or whether it was by folks like Rush Doshi, who are again part of the administration right now, uh, and Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan. Uh, there's even a piece that Biden himself had written earlier last year where he talked about you know, the kind of power America would be. And again, the focus was working with allies and partners in coordination with them, which is something that the argument was that the Trump administration had failed, not just in East Asia, but also with Europe.
And then that's how we've seen then in our document, we then talk about once the Biden administration came to power, how it went about implementing the strategy that it was talking about. So the idea of relative strength relies on four prongs from what we've understood. One is obviously focusing on domestic revival. The other was focusing on partnerships. The third was focusing on uh, uh, a new framework to approach China with. Uh, and the last bit was, again, the military component of it, which predominantly, in our understanding, will be uh, what will drive this is the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Uh, and we've talked about, we've sort of tried to flesh out each of these. Yeah, I'll just um, build on what Manoj said. As he pointed out, one key priority for this administration has been reassuring American allies. This is one area of relative failure for the Trump administration. The transactional approach that they had going for all-out confrontation with China, all of these things uh, basically really didn't work very well with uh, giving some sort of assurance or some sort of uh, sense of security or stability to America's allies, not just in NATO, but more importantly over here in the Indo-Pacific. We've seen outreach by Biden, by Secretary of State Blinken, not just to treaty allies like uh, Japan or South Korea, but also talking to other Quad countries like India, Australia. So you, you do see a very different diplomatic approach there. Also, whether or not Americans actually believe that this sort of coexistence with China is possible in the long term and so on, I think it's they do understand that it's important to provide that reassurance, not just to the Chinese and to America's allies, but also domestically. There is, if you look at if you look at any number of polls that are available today and look at the foreign policy preferences that, or that most Americans seem to espouse, they are not in favor of an interventionist foreign policy. So any policy that has a military component to it has to be sold in the United States as something that is meant to strengthen stability, that is not going to draw the U.S. into the sort of forever wars that it's been involved in the last couple of decades. And that is something that I think Biden has sought to communicate in the last couple of months, but also in a speech most recently. Okay, so I wanted to also talk about one more thing as part of this, uh, you know, effort to work with allies. Uh, and I think has sort of highlighted how uh, the military component of it can be complex. Uh, and there's also a lot of domestic selling that you have to do to make the changes that you're making. And I mean, some of the decisions that we've seen in the last, uh, you know, couple of weeks and months tell us uh, about where US policy with regard to the military is heading. For example, when Biden, Biden announced the pullout of Afghanistan, along with sort of satisfying this need for no longer having an interventionist, uh, you know, foreign policy. Uh, he also, they also mentioned that, you know, this was going to facilitate their reorientation with regard to East Asia. So there is a clear direction in which they want to go with regard to the military. And I'm sure they will talk about this in much more detail going forward. The other aspect of working with allies and partners was that, you know, there was a specific change that Biden announced, you know, he signed an executive order earlier on talking about ensuring resilient, diverse, and secure supply chains. Now, as much as this was about enhancing domestic capacity and jobs with regard to critical goods, he was also talking about working with our trusted friends and partners that share American values. And the approach for this is that they would they announced a 100-day review of supply chains for you know in domains like semiconductors, minerals and materials, rare earths, as well as pharmaceuticals and other ingredients with regard to uh, advanced batteries. This is something that's going to be critical from an Indian point of view also, right? Because we've also made this argument that we need to be able to, if not necessarily decouple, but at least create resilience when it comes to critical uh, goods with regard to China. Um, and this is something that's a product of the pandemic, but it's also a product of the 
diminishing trust of countries with regard to their engagement with China. And I think this is going to be something which is going to be critical going forward. And at least we saw one manifestation of this policy shift that has taken place in the form of the Quad Summit. When you had that Quad Summit in early March, you ended up announcing uh, the idea that you want to work on three different areas. One is climate change, one is critical technology, and one is uh, obviously the vaccine strategy. And again, all three of them, the idea is, particularly when you look at critical technologies, um, you set up a working group, uh, you're going to be talking about that, you're going to be discussing, and it's a very clear agenda that they've outlined, you know, with regard to domestic legislation, with regard to what are the specific technologies that you need to partner on, and how you go about doing that. Again, these are really, really early days, but it tells you about a shift in direction. So under the Trump administration, you were seeing predominantly the focus being on the military component. Towards the fag end of the administration, you saw this conversation about technology. But even then, if you saw the conversation was largely about competing with China and keeping China out. So making countries, forcing countries to choose in one way or the other. And 5G is an example of that. Here, what the administration is saying is that, okay, look, we need to talk about coming up with common approaches when it comes to critical technologies. So it's not dictating a position. It's saying we need to work together to identify common positions because these are complex choices that countries will have to make depending on legacy investment, depending on economic costs, depending on capacity and so on. And it's not just with the Quad, but also there has been talk about a EU-US Trade and Technology Council Again, this conversation was there even sometime back last year, uh, but again, towards the fag end of the Trump administration. But it's very different from, again, when I go back to the Trump administration's argument of, you know, you're with us or against us on these things, to saying that we will come up with common approaches. These are all long-term initiatives which are going to take time. But the fact that this is where the priority has moved beyond the military domain to also economics, technology, tells you that you're building a far more sustainable network with your partners and allies, where you have different modes of cooperation than just uh, the military threat that uh, different countries may presume from China. India's military threat from China is very different from Japan's and it's very different from Australia's. And of course, it's very different from what the French or the Germans might feel. So you need to create these uh, different modes of cooperation if you're going to manage systemic competition or create new rules for the world. So now that we have identified broader trends, I want to uh, discuss specifics about your document. So your document has a section on how there is a new framework coming into picture regarding dealing with China. So Manoj, would you like to highlight what you argue in this framework? Yeah, I mean, there are two parts of this framework, right? The first is that, uh, you know, and I just briefly spoken about this, that under Trump, the idea of the Indo-Pacific policy was predominantly, in practice, it was predominantly revolving around responding to China's rise. How do you counter BRI? How do you counter China's naval development? How do you counter China's work in the South China Sea? Those sorts of things. Under Biden, what has been expressly said by officials, but also what we are seeing evolve, is that you are prioritizing the Indo-Pacific and looking at China as a component of your Indo-Pacific policy and not your Indo-Pacific policy as part of your broader response to China's rise. So there is a difference in that conceptually, right? You're, and that's what, that's what allows you to move towards things like technology, economics, and the rest of it. Otherwise, you are largely boxed into responding to China. Here, you're taking a proactive approach to say, we want to frame the rules here. And I think it sort of goes back to, you know, many years ago, Obama had spoken about, you know, how if we don't make the rules, and he'd spoken about this, I think, in the context of the TPP, 
that if you don't come up with rules of the road, the Chinese will define the rules of the road. Uh, and I think under Trump, what was happening was that the Americans were responding to China's attempts. Here, they're trying to make that pivot to not just respond, but also actually proactively shape the rules in the region, uh, proactively restructure supply chains and so on and so forth. So that's the first sort of part of the framework where you're actually trying to do that. The second part of the framework, and I don't want to sort of go into too many details, has been about, you know, and Blinken has spoken about this, right? The idea that, you know, the relationship with China will be competitive where it should be, collaborative where it can be, adversarial where it must be. And we're seeing some components that play out. In terms of climate change, we've seen attempts at collaboration, whether it was with John Kerry's visit to Shanghai and the joint statement issued, which recognized, uh, and I'm quoting from the joint statement, China's leadership when it came to getting the Paris Climate Accord done. That's the first time that they, and the Washington's recognizing China's leadership in that, uh, in terms of that objective. Or it was in the terms of the climate summit that took place later in April, in which Xi Jinping uh, took part. Likewise, so that's the collaborative aspect of it. Another collaborative aspect of it is the conversation that's happening with regard to the Iran nuclear deal in Vienna, where you're trying to come to terms, where you're trying to get the Americans and the Iranians to come to terms with regard to restarting, uh, sort of restarting both sides, getting back to the JCPOA. And the Chinese are playing a role in that process. So again, you're collaborating in that sense. There's more to this collaboration, which was highlighted after the... uh, talks in Anchorage between Lincoln and Jake Sullivan and Jiang Chechi and Wang Yi. Uh, if you read the American statement after after the talks, despite the theatrics, it talks about areas where their inter- interests intersect, part of them being Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea, climate change. So there are areas where the US and China can work together and what the Biden administration is saying is that we recognize this. At the same time, it's saying that, look, we will be competitive where we should be, which is and what they are defining as areas of competitive Engagement is uh, value, uh, actually values is where they're talking adversarial relationship, but competitive is uh, in terms of the economy, technology, supply chains, where you don't necessarily want to be adversarial forcing countries to choose one or the other, but you're saying that we are going to be competing here and part of that competition is investment domestically and the rest of it is also obviously working with allies and partners. And the adversarial nature so far of what we've seen is with regard to values. So we've seen competition, sort of adversarial exchanges when it comes to human rights, when it comes to sanctions with regard to Hong Kong or Xinjiang and retaliatory sanctions by the Chinese. So that's what we are seeing. uh, And we've tried to sort of unpack what Blinken's comment has meant and how that has played out. So that's where we're talking about the new framework with regard to China. Hmm. Aditya, now I want to come to you. In your document, you guys have also discussed uh, Pacific Deterrence Initiative as a response to China's rising ability, especially its A2AD capabilities. Uh, this was proposed in 2017. How do you see PDI, as in Pacific Deterrence Initiative, going forward under Biden administration? Sure. Uh, well, that seems uh, likely is that it will actually go ahead. Like you pointed out, it, it had been proposed in some form or the other since 2017, but it somehow got stuck as people tried to figure out exactly what they wanted to do with it figure out how it is going to be funded. There's a lot more clarity on this. So what is the Pacific Deterrence Initiative is actually one of those things uh, which indicate a fair amount of continuity, at least in the military sphere, from uh, the Trump administration. And uh, like you pointed out, Suyash, this is primarily predicated on China's A to AD capabilities, though North Korea has also been cited as a, a rationale for the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. It's not 
it fits into the Indo-Pacific strategy, but it's uh, really a small military subset and a geographic subset because its primary focus is on the Western Pacific. So what are China's A280 capabilities? Uh, we've talked about this quite a bit on this, but just to go over them quickly, you know, China's whole strategy in the Western Pacific, uh, we generally assume is predicated on the idea that it can hold at risk any U.S. naval assets as well as ground-based assets that come within the first island chain and second island chain closer to uh, basically Chinese uh, territory. Now, to achieve this, basically what the Chinese do is they've been building up this whole plethora of uh, precision-guided missiles with conventional warheads. Uh, these are both cruise missiles and ballistic missiles. And uh, the Chinese are seem to be practicing and working on and experimenting on getting these missiles to be able to hit mobile targets at sea as well as hardened targets on land. What the Chinese seem to be thinking is that by simply having this capability, you create some hesitance in Americans about, say, intervening in, for example, a crisis in the Taiwan Straits. And the very fact that that hesitance exists even in peacetime loosens the uh, bonds uh, between these uh, countries in the Western Pacific, uh, be it Taiwan, be it South Korea, and even Japan. Uh, the bonds between these countries and, and the U.S. Uh, it reduces their confidence in America's ability to come to their aid in the event of, of a crisis. What the Pacific Deterrence Initiative does is it broadly tries to do two things. One is it creates, it seeks to create American offensive systems to be able, that can potentially target some of these uh, Chinese missiles. And two, it seeks to create a sense, a series of uh, methods, capabilities which the U.S. can use to both detect and potentially intercept some of these incoming uh, Chinese missiles. Uh, there is a third component which is uh, often overlooked, which is the uh, sort of logistical capabilities. So uh, it, this means fuel and ammunition depots. It means uh, being able to uh, provide logistics, say, for example, refueling ships. Uh, so it, it basically is meant to enhance the American ability to operate in the Western Pacific. Now, this strategy has gone through a few iterations. By early March, we seem to have a fairly clear idea of what this would entail. Uh, and uh, there's also now a clear funding route for it. Uh, initially, the Pacific Deterrence Initiative was supposed to be funded through what Americans call the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund. This is basically like a wartime fund uh, meant to fund uh, operations in the Middle East that used to crop up unexpectedly, for example, operations in Syria. Uh, it eventually ended up being used to fund a European Deterrence Initiative in, uh, in Europe uh, as, as part of uh, broader NATO goals. And the same was supposed to happen now, but it looks like the Biden administration is actually scrapping this OCO entirely, as you know, as Manoj pointed out, as part of the, the, the whole, you know, getting out of America's forever wars, realigning to the Indo-Pacific. And uh, what this means is that both the European Deterrence Initiative and the Pacific Deterrence Initiative will probably be funded on their funding will will be on shorer ground, and uh, their funding is also going to be subject to more congressional oversight over the coming years. So generals and admirals are really going to have to go up to Congress and explain why they need some money and what they're planning to spend that money on. So uh, the Pacific Deterrence Initiative is still in its early stages. It's very much an integral part of the Biden administration's approach to defense overall. In fact, the request that they've sent to Congress very bluntly says that it's meant to counter threats from China. You know, they make no bones about it. So it's something that we are finally going to see after many years of discussion actually happen under the Biden administration.
interesting. We have interesting times ahead looking at what is happening yeah. right now. There's certainly going to be interesting times. Uh, one thing I will add about the uh, PDI is that, uh, you know, uh, a lot of the issues that it seeks to address are not necessarily easily addressable at the moment. So, you know, part of this is political and diplomatic. It's about America rebuilding its relationship with its allies, which we've talked about. But also some very specific military issues. You know, how do you intercept an incoming Chinese missile? Really, the technology for this is at best still at R&D stage or an experimental stage. So, you know, how far the Pacific Deterrence Initiative works to the way it is envisioned today, I think will depend on how some of these technologies evolve, some of these capabilities evolve. So while we are likely to see the PDI becoming a regular feature of American military architecture in the Western Pacific, the uh, complexion that it takes and the shape that it, it, it takes is likely to change over the next decade. So uh, guys, what what all these, these are the recent developments that have happened in past two, three months. So what all these, what implications does all these developments have on India? So uh, my sense is that, look, there is going to be a positive and a negative side of the balance sheet. On the positive side, you're going to see, uh, you know, it's going to be heartening from an Indian point of view that the Biden Biden administration is continuing with the policy of the Indo-Pacific and it's sort of expanded its scope to economic and technology and those domains that can really be useful for us from the point of view of our capacity development, whether it's from for defense, technology, trade, and so on and so forth. We would also like to be part of trusted supply chain networks and we can hopefully be the host for some of those supply chain, you know, uh, some of those lines of supply chain where at least some of the manufacturing can come to India. Um, so that's one thing that we are uh, sort of optimistic about. On the negative side, I think, and we've seen some of this already where there is some friction with regard to, uh, say, values and human rights. Nothing at the moment from the administration's point of view, but uh, in the Western press, you've seen criticism of uh, India and, you know, uh, there is a progressive flank of the Democratic Party which uh, could end up sort of having holding sway over at least some decisions uh, in the administration. At the moment, we've not seen this really impinge the relationship. And I don't think tensions over human rights will undermine the strategic logic of the relationship. Uh, But it's something that can create challenges in that sense. Um, Also, one of the things, and we've seen this in the last 10 days when we had this conversation uh, on social media and in the media in India about uh, the Biden administration providing support at the moment of this crisis that we are facing in India right now with regard to COVID-19, there was a lot of criticism of the Biden administration's really poor uh, initial response where it was basically a non-response. And that sort of tells you a little bit about, you know, the, I mean, possibly there's a friction and there's tension to focus on domestic priorities or foreign uh, policy objectives. And in this case, we've seen uh, at least some degree of that friction play out. There's an interesting piece in The Atlantic recently by Tom Wright where he talks about how there was uh, this sense that so much of the Biden administration was focused on addressing domestic needs with regard to the pandemic. That this reorientation, although in theory it existed that we need to be working with allies and partners, this reorientation required a debate internally and that debate took time. At the end of it, yes, the people who were arguing for engagement won. But that sort of, you know, orientation of, you know, the challenge between domestic revival and foreign engagement and how do you arrive at that balance could create certain frictions 
And we saw that probably play out in the last 10, 15 days with regard to the pandemic uh, and the Biden administration's response to that. Once it has responded, it's like, you know, done a full court press where you have uh, everybody, you know, engaging publicly and you have supplies landing, which have just landed today. So I think that's the sort of challenge. Those are the kind of challenges that I would foresee at least continuing. I will just add to that, uh, you know, once again, like you talked about views within the Democratic Party. Uh, the Democratic Party's views of Russia has really transformed, especially since uh, Russia's apparent interference in the 2016 election process. And there is a large enough faction, both within the administration and in Congress, that is deeply hostile towards Russia, that is suspicious of Russia. And this comes even as Russia-China partnership deepens and widens. So one area of friction, again, that we might see uh, with the Biden administration is simply over Russia. It's still not clear, for example, if India will get waiver on sanctions, on the CATSA sanctions over its purchase of the S-400 air defense system from Russia. So how the Russia-China relationship evolves and how Biden's administration, uh, Biden's approach to Russia changes will definitely have some significant influence on the India-US relationship and, you know, the limits of that relationship. Okay. So, in conclusion, it's an interesting space to watch and we will be we will continue discussing this strategic issues on all things policy. The document is published and is, on, is uploaded on the website. We'll share a link in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you, Manoj and Aditya for joining. Thanks. Thank you. The Takshashila Institution is an independent, non-partisan think tank and a school of public policy. We have education programs lasting one semester and one year that are tailored specifically for people like you. They are all online and you can take them from anywhere. Admissions are now open for our 12-week graduate certificate program in public policy, defense and foreign affairs, technology policy, and health and life sciences. Visit takshashira.org.in slash courses to find out more. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM Podcast app, ivmpodcast.com, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy, and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website, takshashila.org.in.